please take your Bibles and open them to Isaiah chapter 22. We'll be looking at verses 20 through 25. Scripture is also printed there for you in the bulletin on pages 6 and 7. Isaiah 22, starting in verse 20. In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place. And he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house. The offspring and issue every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way, and it will be cut down and fall, and the load that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. You may be seated. And as you do, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, it is good as we come for us to keep silent even for a moment. To reflect on you, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, taking on flesh for the very purpose of our redemption. Alleluia, alleluia, we cry. And now as we hear your word, as we highlight Jesus as the key of David, the one standing at the door to open and shut the way to you, may it encourage all of us this morning to come, to come to Jesus to rest in him, to rest in his work. May you be glorified. May your spirit be at work in the preaching of your word this morning, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. Keys, we all have them, whether to our homes, our cars, our workplaces, and the like. My own keychain has four physical keys on it. My home, car, the church, and my parents' house in Pennsylvania, just in case we want to stop by unannounced. So lesson for all your young people, be kind to your parents, and maybe you will get to keep the key that you currently have and show up unannounced whenever you want. Sorry for any parents who have just instilled fear into you. But even in our technologically savvy world, where many physical keys have been replaced with key fobs and smart technologies, keys are still incredibly important. Without a key, you are, you are without access. Actually, just this past week, I tried to open the, the door over here using said parent's key, and I was without access. Peggy was looking at me like, what's going on? And when I finally realized my blunder, I said, wrong key, wrong door. But along with access, keys also signal authority. My house key says my house belongs to me. I get to say who comes in. I get to be the one to open it, to shut it. Our text this morning from Isaiah 22 centers on this picture of a key having the authority to grant or even deny access. And now technically, for those of you familiar with O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, the the hymn that's informing our series, you will note that the key of David is the fifth title and the final title of the hymn. We have previously covered the titles of Emmanuel, Lord of Might, Rod of Jesse, looking at the scriptural basis and the significance of each. And so those of you who are deeply, deeply concerned about following things in order, I'm sorry to disappoint you. 
but rest assured, we will get to the fourth title on Christmas Eve. So come back on Christmas Eve, Saturday night, to hear about uh, the day spring from on high. But take a deep breath for today and tune in, and then come back again on Christmas Eve. We're going to look at, this morning, the key of David, that fifth title. And while it is one of the more obscure of the five titles, it is no less important. Understanding who Jesus is as the key of David should encourage us. Actually, it will encourage us. It will help lift our gaze to heaven where Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And it will call all of us anew, maybe for the first time or for the countless time, to rest in Christ as the only one who can grant us access to God and God alone. So come to Jesus, the key of David, through whom you and I can enter the kingdom of God. The outline you'll see is printed for you in the bulletin. We'll look at the surrounding context, but we're really just going to focus on that 22nd verse where we find the phrase, the key of David. The points are the provision of the key, the power of the key, and then finally the person of the key. First, we start with the provision of the key. The key is not something that is to be earned. It's not something that can even be pursued. And it's, neither is it some kind of trophy or reward given for performance. It is given by God. I don't know if you caught the language as I read the text, but here are some of the things that the Lord says in verses 20 through 23, which are building up to and flowing from verse 22. The Lord says, I will call my servant. I will clothe him and will bind him and will commit. And I will place on his shoulder and I will fasten him. In each one of these clauses, the Lord is the subject. He's the active one. All the other characters are passive. There's no debate about who's responsible ultimately for giving this key. It is the Lord. The key of David and all that it represents, which we will get to, is the Lord's provision and his alone. He's free to give it to whom he chooses. There's no debate. Now, as we've done for many of these titles, it, it, it is helpful for us to gain a little bit of some historical context to help us get a firmer grasp of what's happening here. The direct audience that Isaiah is speaking to is this individual named Shebna. He is actually the current steward of the house of David. He's the one currently holding the key. He is called the head of the household in verse 15. And so the entire context of Isaiah 22 is simultaneously a word of judgment against Jerusalem as well as a word of judgment against this man, Shebna. You see, Jerusalem, they've heard the threat of invasion from Assyria and they've used it as an excuse for revelry and feasting when it should have been an excuse for them to repent, to confess, and to plead with God for his mercy. The spirit of the day with this threat is not, Lord, have mercy, but as we can read earlier is, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And in that same spirit, we have Shebna, the head of the household, who in, this, in the same way has been using the threat of invasion to boost his own security in the house of David. In verses 15 and 16, we find that he's actually cutting tombs for himself and for his descendants. To kind of give them this exalted status within the house of David. 
while the rest of the nation is in fear of the invasion that's coming. And so it's because of this attitude of the people and of Shebna himself that Isaiah is sent to him to tell, to tell Shebna, you're being deposed of your office. The head of household is about to get demoted. We read it in verse 19 where the Lord says, I will thrust you from your office and you will be pulled down from your station. And again, even notice in there that the Lord is the one doing it. And so in his place, we get this man named Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. The Lord calls him in verse 20, my servant, which is setting him aside with a level of honor and of dignity, while also providing him as a stark contrast to Shebna. Shebna serves himself. Hilkiah serves the Lord. But beyond this, we don't know much more about this man, Eliakim. Later on in Isaiah 36, chapter 3, we'll find the confirmation of this word, because when the king of Assyria sends his messengers, it is Eliakim who goes out to meet them. And actually, ironically, Shebna goes with him as the secretary. Just a, a double insult. He's gone from head, or he head of household to the secretary. No offense to any secretaries in here. So with this context in mind, then, we return to the main emphasis of verses 20 and 23, of the Lord establishing Eliakim in this new position. And regarding these verses, the, the picture that is painted is a pretty clear and even somewhat graphic one. On one side, you have Shebna. He's dressed for his position as head of household. He has the robe, which could suggest either a priestly or even a kingly function. He has the sash tied securely around his waist to complete the ensemble, signaling him as a dignified person. Now, we don't know if Hezekiah established this dress or if Shebna took it, on, took it upon himself, but the picture that we get is Shebna in his robe saying, I am important. I am in charge. And on the other side, you have Eliakim probably just in his common dress. And one by one, we see the pieces of Shebna's outfit taken off and given to Eliakim. The sash gets untied and laid aside. The robe gets removed from the shoulders of Shebna and draped over the shoulders of Eliakim. Then the sash is picked back up and tied securely around his waist. And then to finish it off, the key, which was likely tied to a string, adorns his neck over his head, adorns his shoulders, and rests probably right in the center of his chest. The transfer of status and honor is clear, it is public. For Shebna, it's shameful. For Eliakim, it's dignifying. The Lord is going to provide for his people. He's going to give them someone better. Better than this self-serving, self-glorifying Shebna. Someone who will use their authority, not to their own benefit, but to the benefit of the people. Someone who would serve with the tenderness and the loving care of a father for his children. Someone who will at the same time guard the access to the house and also grant access to the house faithfully. 
And we know ultimately this is a picture of Jesus. The last point of the, ser- the sermon, spoiler alert, is going to be Jesus is the person of the key. But even still, in response, the idea that God provides, in this case the key, should fill us with gratitude. For yes, God has provided the key in Jesus Christ. We will look at that. But he also continues to provide leaders for his covenant community today. Just last week, we had the blessing, and it is a blessing, to ordain and install new men for the office of elder and deacon. It's a service I look forward to each and every year because it serves as a testimony to God's faithfulness to provide for his church. Men called and equipped to care for his people. So this should lead us to give him praise. God provides his people with what we need, including leaders. But humility should also be our response. And specifically for those of us who are in leadership. Whether particularly spiritual leadership. And whether formal or informal. At the church, in the home, or elsewhere. Because we still need God's help in his provision. On this point, Matthew Henry writes, Those that are called to the places of trust and power should seek unto God for grace to enable them to do the duty of their places, for that ought to be their chief care. Failed leaders trust in themselves, their abilities, and their provisions. That's what Shebna was doing. Faithful leaders humbly seek God, trust God, And seek to lead others in doing the same. May we be such and seek such leaders by the provision of God and the power of his spirit at work within us. And so with that note of power, an easy transition then into our second point, the power of the key. The key is not simply a shiny piece of jewelry that would complete the wardrobe of the head of household. It would represent, in a physical way, all the authority pertaining to the things in the house resting with the one who had it. I mentioned moments ago how the key was likely tied to a string, which would then get draped over the head and placed on the shoulders. Sometimes it may have even been embroidered into the shoulder piece. And that purpose was twofold. For one, the key was not like our keys, you know, about this big, easily lost, but also easily tucked into a pocket. The key that the head of household would have held would have been a little bit bigger. Because such a key would unlock everything in the king's house. The front gate, the doors leading into the palace, even the throne room itself. And all these doors would have been probably pretty large and imposing doors, likely requiring an equally large and imposing key. So even if the key was not large, it was significant. Placing it over the shoulder or attaching it to the tunic would have kept it in a safe and accessible place because a master of the cows who lost a key would quickly find himself without a job. So the arrangement would keep it in his possession. But it also then, the arrangement highlights the second purpose. It's to symbolize authority. Because placed either in the center of the chest or resting on the shoulder is a very public place. 
easily seen by any and all who enter into or seek to enter into the household. No, it wouldn't have been gaudy like some of our modern music stars who wear massive chains or medallions or one who wears a massive clock around his neck. The intent was not to make a scene or a spectacle about the key, but it was to clearly identify to all seeking entry where you needed to go to get in, who you needed to seek out in order to find entry. No one would walk into the house and wonder, you know, I bet I can't put my finger on it. Who's in charge here? The master of the house with the key spoke volumes without speaking a word. That guy's in charge. He's the authority. The man with the key, seek him. So when the Lord comes in verse 22 and declares, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David, he is publicly providing and also empowering Eliakim with this authority. He says it's no longer resting with Shebna. Instead, it's going to rest on the shoulders of this man Eliakim. And again, if we fast forward to Isaiah 36, we will see that that's indeed what happens. But naturally, this, this authority instrument makes us wonder what exactly did the power entail? What was the authority that this key symbolized supposed to be used for? And again, I've mentioned it, but we find it in the second half of verse 22. He shall open, and none shall shut. And he shall shut, and none shall open. And on the one hand, this seems pretty obvious. A key allows you to open and close a door, to lock and unlock a lock. The one who holds the key holds the power to open and close a door, to lock and unlock a door. But in that day, and even in to an extent of our own, there is more than just the power to open and to shut. And in fact, that opening and closing isn't the main emphasis. The point is really about access. You see, the steward or the one who is over the house had the authority to either welcome or turn aside whoever they wanted. He's like a gatekeeper, but also so much more than a gatekeeper. Because he, as the head of the household, would be responsible for everything going on inside the house. Nothing would take place outside of his watchful eye. Nothing would happen without his approval. No one would enter without him signing off on it. And all who lived in the household would stain to gain much and also lose much, depending on how faithful the steward was. If he only let those who were for the good of the household in, it was to the benefit of the household. If he were to let those who would bring damage and danger in, it would be to the danger and damage of the household as well. Shebna had failed because he had sought his own interest to the detriment of the house of David. And so Eliakim would be given the power and the authority to reverse that course of action. And again, this idea isn't entirely foreign to us. No, as far as I'm aware, no one in here has knighted or given someone a key and called them head of household. If you have, sounds kind of fun. But we do grant authority to people and even use our keys as a symbol of that authority. 
Over the summer, when our family went back to Pennsylvania for a few weeks, we gave our key to someone here to check on the house while we were gone. With that key, they could open and shut every door in our house. With that key, they had the authority to do whatever they wanted, technically, with what was happening inside our house. They even had the power to, gain, to give access to whoever they wanted into our home. And thankfully, like a good and faithful steward, this individual used their power and their authority very well. Our plants got watered. Our packages got taken inside and stuff left on the front porch. Our AC even got adjusted down a little bit. So when we came home, the house wasn't an oven, but a nice, cool, air-conditioned home in the middle of summer. But even most important, the doors got locked, and no one we did not want into our home was allowed into our home. This steward had the power, and he faithfully used it for the best interest of my family and in the best interest of our home. And the good news this morning and every Lord's Day is that Jesus Christ, and through him, you and I have been given access. First and foremost, we've been given access into the kingdom of the Almighty God. We belong there. We are welcome in. The door is open for us to walk through. And it's been open thanks to Jesus Christ, the one mediator between God and man, who holds the power of the key by means of his incarnation, his perfect life, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. And this great reality should drive us to worship our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, because Christ has the power to open and to close. The way to the triune God, eternal, immortal, has been opened because of him. But it should also lead us to take full advantage of the additional access we have received in Christ, access to the throne of grace. It would be wonderful enough if we just had welcome in the kingdom. We also have access to go to the throne of God Almighty and to plead for his mercy and his grace in our time of need. Let it drive us to daily find mercy from his hand. Let it drive us who are leaders to bring those we're leading with us to the throne of grace. Elders, let us bring our sheep to take advantage of the access we have to God in prayer. Husbands, take your wives. Parents, take your children. Older men, older women, take the younger men and the younger women. The power of the key that is in Jesus' hands means that you and I have been given unlimited access within the kingdom of God. May we share the wonderful blessings of it daily. Finally then, touched on a little bit, we get to the person of the key. And again, it's, hopefully it's been clear and already stated, but it's worth saying one more time. Jesus Christ is the full and final fulfillment of the key of David. He is the one that God has provided he is the one holding the power and the authority of access. He would be the one that this relatively unknown Eliakim would ultimately point forward to. 
You see, in biblical terms, Eliakim serves as a type of Christ. For those who don't know, types would point to something greater, something fuller, something more complete that was yet to come. And so as we read of Eliakim, we should understand that he was never meant to be the key to end all keys. While his authority was certainly absolute, it was still limited. It was primarily political and administrative. It didn't really extend further beyond the house of David. The word given then to Isaiah was not designed to establish some kind of permanent role for Eliakim and his descendants. You and your descendants will forever be the key of David. No, because we actually find in the second in verses 23 through 25, that Eliakim's reign would be very short. His service would be temporary. These verses stress the limited scope. Look at them just briefly with me. In verse 23, Eliakim is likened to a peg that's fastened into a wall. And then in verse 24, a whole bunch of people come and start hanging things on this peg, hoping to establish some kind of dynasty through Eliakim. And then in verse 25, we find that that peg can't hold the weight and everything comes crashing down. We know the picture. We've all done that. We've put something on the wall and we've hung one thing, then two things, then three things, then four things, and then suddenly we wake up in the morning and everything we hung there is lying on the ground. This was Eliakim's destiny. His shoulders would not bear the weight of all the governments, of all the authority and the power. They couldn't. His time would be short. His power would be limited. The honor of his position would be merely temporary. And it's because of this, then, that we are joyfully and expectantly pointed forward to Jesus. I had the text of Revelation 3-7 printed for you right under the text of Isaiah 22, because that's where Jesus himself says he is the key of David. He's talking to the church of Philadelphia, a church that is weary, that is tired, and is yet faithful to the Lord in its weariness and in its exhaustion. And so the Lord comes and says, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. It's nearly a word-for-word quote. Jesus tells this group of suffering Christians that I hold the key of David with all of its power, with all of its authority, and with all of its honor. All those images that we read in verses 20 through 25 point to Jesus. The robe is his. The sash is tied firmly, eternally around his waist. He is like that tender, compassionate father leading in the best interest of his people into the glory of his father. He is the secure peg that is fashioned to the wall whom all the people of God can rest all of their hopes on and it will never come crashing down because he is eternally secure. His shoulders can handle the weight. But again, most tied to Isaiah 22, 22, he holds the key. It's in his hand. He has the power to open and to shut. 
and not to some physical door, to some palace on a plot of earth, but the door that grants access and welcome into the kingdom of God. Him holding the key says, if anyone wants to get to God, you have to go through me. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone has the power and the authority to open and to shut, to grant access and to turn aside. Any other door is going to be the wrong door. Any other key will leave you on the outside looking in. And this ultimately aligns with what Jesus would tell his disciples in John 14, 6, when he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. As John Calvin would write in his Institutes, Jesus is the key that unlocks for us the treasures of the kingdom of God. These treasures include, but are not limited to, forgiveness, welcome, peace, rest, delight, an inheritance, the eternal worship of God in the presence of God, the fellowship of the saints, the relief from sin and suffering, and so much more. And what is more, the power and the authority that he has as the key holding is not limited in scope or in time. It is absolute, irresistible, uncontrollable. Yes, it pertains to all things regarding the kingdom, but it also pertains to all things outside the kingdom. It is universal in every aspect. It extends over all time, all people. There is not one square inch of creation outside of his power and authority. And so likewise, there will never be a threat that can take it from him. There will never be something that will lead him to let go of it. Because unlike Eliakim, Jesus has the shoulders that can bear the weight. Isaiah would say this in Isaiah 9-6, a very familiar prophecy we read at this time. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. And his name shall be Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus, as the key of David, reigns supreme over all things, and he alone grants welcome into the kingdom of God. And as we heard last week, this kingdom is one that is marked by righteousness, goodness, and truth, those things that we desperately long for and hope for. The kingdom is that heavenly home that the hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, longingly hopes and yearns for. Jesus is that safe way closed off to pain and misery of this fallen, sin-cursed world. He is the one holding the key. He is the provision of God. He has all the power and authority. And the question is, will we humble ourselves and come at his call? So as we conclude, that's the point I want to stress this morning. And it's also how I opened the sermon with. The call is for us to come to Jesus. This is how we can apply this text to our lives today. If you are here and you have never come to Jesus, I would plead with you to come. The door that is open now will one day be shut when Christ returns in his glory. 
whether you have grown up in the church or rarely entered one, turn from your sin and submit yourself to Christ and to his reign. Turn from being like Shebna, trusting in your own provisions, your own power, your own ability, your own person, whether it's your goodness. They will not, they cannot get you to where you hope they will. But Jesus Christ can, and he will welcome you into his kingdom today and for all eternity. Come to Jesus and find welcome in his kingdom. And for the rest of us who are already in Christ, the invitation is still to come to Jesus. Come rejoicing in the provision that God has given you and I in him. Let it fill your hearts with joy and delight and worship and awe that God would do it for sinners like you and me. Come seeking his power to make you more and more like his son in holiness and goodness and truth. Come taking full advantage of the access you have to come to the throne of grace because of the key of David's perfect work of redemption on your behalf. And as we did moments ago, come turning from your sin, your ongoing self-reliance, to once again bow the knee to his perfect and good reign over you. And then come with hope, knowing that there will come a day where you and I will forever rest in that kingdom that, whose door is open for us, eternally secure for all who come to him by faith. Come to Jesus, the key of David, through whom you and I can enter the kingdom of God. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the key of David, the one who stands and has opened the door to your presence that we can even do this this morning. Worship you, exalt you, plead with you, beg for your mercy. Thank you for your provision through him, your power given to him. God, may we come daily to Jesus. May we come humbly before him, submit ourselves to his perfect and good reign over us. Worship at your feet and hope and delight in the day that is to come when we will be in your kingdom surrounded by the saints hearing the songs of the redeemed for all eternity may that picture give us a joy and a delight for your return we pray in Christ's name